0: Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the
1: University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Lisette Chapronier, a PhD student at the University of Glasgow. We'll be talking primarily about her experiences navigating disability in academia and her research on the relationship between disability and human enhancement. If, after listening, you'd like to find out more about Lisette's work, you can find her website at www.lisettechaproniere.com, or you can email her at Lisette at Lisette Chaproniere, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest.
2: Thank you for having me on the podcast. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about
0: your journey studying philosophy at the graduate level. How did you get there?
2: Well, I didn't start studying philosophy until uh, master's level. So when I was in further education college, before I went to university, I was doing uh, music technology, and that's what I wanted to do at university. But I was also doing A-level English, and my English teacher really encouraged me to continue doing that at university and she kept saying this to me and I thought about it and in the end I applied to do a degree in music production and creative writing but for various reasons after the first year I dropped the music production so I just did a single honours degree in creative writing where I studied not just the normal things you'd think of like fiction and poetry and script writing We did those things, but we also did journalism and nonfiction as well. So I enjoyed and got a lot out of that. But I did notice that I was getting really interested in the philosophical things that came up. So we didn't study any philosophy as such, but it did come up when we were talking about people's work in class or we were talking about themes that various writers had covered. So uh, actually, to my surprise, I really enjoyed the theory side of it. And around about when I was just going to start my final year of that degree, I really started thinking seriously about doing philosophy. And I did a bit of Googling, thinking that if I wanted to do that, I'd have to go and start my undergrad degree again. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to fund that. So I looked into it, but wasn't really expecting to find anything But after a bit of Googling, I did discover that the University of Glasgow, where I am now, has a master's designed especially for people who have a degree in something other than philosophy. So they get you up to speed in analytic philosophy to a point where you can, if you want to, apply for a PhD after you've done that master's degree. And so I applied for that master's and came to Glasgow to do that. And then really enjoyed that. After I'd done that, I took a few years away from academia and couldn't decide whether I wanted to do a PhD or not. But after going back and forwards on it a lot, I decided in the end to apply and came back.
1: The idea of a uh, master's degree in philosophy for those who haven't studied philosophy yet at undergraduate level, that's really interesting. So what did that look like structurally? Was it kind of a crash course for all of the big areas in philosophy, or did you have more of an opportunity to specialise in what you wanted to study early on?
2: It was both. So one of the courses that we took was called Introduction to Analytic Philosophy, and that involved going through all the major areas, ethics, epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of mind, bits of critical thinking and logic. and There was also a section called classic papers, which was each week a different lecturer would teach us one paper. But as well as that, we could choose option courses, which we could select from the undergraduate offerings. So in that part of the course, we were attending the same lectures as undergraduates, but we were assessed slightly differently. So there's a lot of flexibility there to tailor the course and specialise in what you wanted to specialise in. And then also dissertation at the end, which of course is specialist as well.
1: And how did you then go about settling on a topic for your research proposal when you came to apply for PhD programs in philosophy?
2: Well, I had quite a journey with that as well because I came into philosophy not really knowing what I wanted to do. I actually was at the time quite interested in philosophy of religion, but I think I now know that I don't really have anything new to say about that. (laughs) So once I started doing my master's, I got really interested in political philosophy as well and ethics. So I did my dissertation on a disability-related topic, and I was thinking about doing something on disability and enhancement, which is what I do now, but I couldn't quite manage to make that work. And then when I applied to do my PhD, I had a bit of trouble trying to work out what exactly I wanted to do, because I was really fascinated by a lot of these issues around disability. But I also was a little bit ambivalent about whether I wanted to do that as a disabled student. It just seemed like the really obvious thing for me to do. Of course, a disabled person is going to do disability, and I suppose I didn't want to be pigeonholed as somebody who would do that. So I made a bit of a compromise with myself where I decided that I would do something that was had an element about disability, but wasn't all about disability, maybe a, a thesis that had a chapter about disability. And I was originally going to do a thesis about how we know whether we're at a disadvantage. So there was some political philosophy but there was a bit of epistemology in it as well. And so I ended up working with a political philosopher and epistemologist. And as I was working on it, the way that I proposed to do it turned out not to work that well. And as I pursued it further, I realized I was more interested in the various applications like disability and like enhancement, which I will explain a little bit later on. So that really turned out to be a a much more fruitful way of doing things and also something I turned out to be much more interested in. These days, I think I'm not quite as worried as I used to be about being pigeonholed as somebody who does disability. or that doesn't seem quite as important to me as it used to because I've come to realise that I do want to be part of these conversations. I do want to know what's being said about disability and contribute to that. And I've realised that that's important for me personally and for society to have people doing that. So it's just much less of a concern to me. But also the thesis that I'm doing now brings me into contact with so many different areas of philosophy. So it's not that I'm just being stuck in this one topic. I'm getting to think about and learn about lots of different issues as I think through these specific problems.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you managed to find that compromise. We spoke as well with another student, Jack, in a previous episode about the challenges that neurodiversity in philosophy can pose. But I'd be interested to hear from your experience, what kind of unique challenges blindness as a disability can pose in academia?
2: Well, my department's been very good on the whole and I have a really fantastic supervisory team. I couldn't ask for better supervisors. So they've been very supportive. The department's been very good. There was one anecdote that happened once that sticks out as something that philosophers shouldn't do, which is that an external speaker came once to the department a few years ago and he was going through his presentation and he decided that he wasn't going to read the long quotes on his slide. And I quote, because you can all read and of course, That's not helpful for anybody in the audience who might be blind or visually impaired or dyslexic or for any other reason might not be able to read your slides. So I just highlight that as maybe an obvious thing that philosophers shouldn't do. But on the whole, I think the challenges I've faced have mostly been not so much from philosophers as from broader institutional barriers and issues with the environment. So the campus where I am, the University of Glasgow, it's an ancient university. It's not very easy to navigate, so I don't really have the same level of independence as I had when I was an undergraduate, where I was at uh, a much smaller satellite campus that wasn't the main campus of the university. So I've needed a lot more support to get around and arranging that support is sometimes quite a challenge because it's an external organisation that provides that support and applying for the support can be quite challenging as well. So the system in the UK is you apply for DSA, which is Disabled Students Allowance, and that's a government scheme where you fill in a form and they provide funding. They don't give you the money directly, but they will fund any equipment or uh, non-medical help as they call it so support workers essentially but the forms for that can be quite long and are not accessible you can't do it online it used to be that you had to do a paper form I think you can now download a pdf but the pdf doesn't work very well it's not that accessible so why that's the case in this day and age I don't know but I have actually found that as things have moved on to Zoom over the pandemic that has made things a lot easier in many ways. So just to give one example, I've been able to chair the Q&A sessions at some of our talks at our postgraduate seminar which is not something I've been able to do before because people would have raised a hand or a finger to ask a question and I wouldn't have been able to see that but now at least our procedure is put a Q in the chat if you've got a question or put an F in the chat if you've got a follow-up send that to the chair and so that is much more accessible so that's something I've been able to do that wasn't possible for me before so I think Zoom does make things a lot easier for I expect people with many different disabilities but certainly for me
0: well, it's a very informative take on the sort of support systems that are in place and the sorts of things that need to be improved. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. And in a related vein, just talking about the work and the research that you do at the University of Glasgow, I'd really like to start off by just kind of asking you, you know, a kind of basic question, perhaps, or may, maybe it turns out not to be so basic, but I'm curious about what it is uh, in, sort of in a philosophical context that we mean by the word enhancement.
2: Well, as with just about everything in philosophy, there are lots of different definitions or accounts of enhancement. But I think the basic idea behind most definitions is that enhancements are a bit like medicines. So they might be drugs, for instance, except that they're not aimed at treating a disorder. So people with ADHD sometimes take Ritalin. But if you take Ritalin, but you don't have ADHD and you're just taking it because you want to improve your concentration, that would be classified as an enhancement. So it's going beyond treating a disorder. It's trying to improve on something that's already healthy. Now, I tend to think that that's not a very good distinction, and I'm not the only person who thinks that. There are lots of people in the literature who challenge that distinction that I just made between Treating disorders and diseases and disabilities and enhancing something healthy. So the definition that I tend to prefer is I tend to think of an enhancement as any kind of medical technology that increases or your capacities or adds a new capacity. So there are lots of different things that we might enhance. We might use physical enhancement. An example of that would be performance enhancing drugs in sports. We might enhance cognitive capacities, such as memory, for instance. People sometimes talk about moral enhancement, emotional enhancement, extending our lifespans radically beyond what is currently possible. And then we can also categorise enhancements according to what kind of technology they are. So I've already mentioned drugs of various kinds, there's genetic editing, there's implants or brain-computer interfaces. So those are some different things that we might want to classify as enhancements.
1: So if you're a proponent or you're in favour of human enhancements, does that make you a transhumanist, or is there some difference there?
2: Possibly. And again, I think that's something where there's probably not really an agreed upon definition. Um, the way I would tend to think of it is that transhumanism is a movement that is trying to promote radical enhancements. So it's trying to make it possible for us to transcend our limitations and go radically beyond what's currently possible for humans without the use of technology. So that would be radical enhancement. But there are also more moderate enhancements where we might just improve something without being quite so radical. So I think there are people who are in favour of more moderate kinds of enhancement, but don't necessarily want us to use radical enhancements. And I probably wouldn't call those people transhumanists, but I also think that is this particular enhancement proposal transhumanist is probably just not a very important question.
0: Right. And connecting up to the interests you have in the philosophy of disability, what would you say is the relationship between enhancement and disability? So you might think, you know, what, what, what grounds would disabled people sort of have a claim against proponents of enhancement?
2: Well, you may remember that I mentioned earlier that lots of definitions of enhancement Suggest that something isn't an enhancement if it treats disability. And if that's your view, then to know what an enhancement is, you have to know what a disability is. But if you reject that kind of view, if you reject that distinction between treating a disability or removing a disability and enhancing, then there's an even closer link between the two. So the sorts of worries that disabled people might have about enhancement, I think, are really about the values involved. So a lot of disabled people object to the idea of cure. Maybe they're quite happy being disabled and they don't like the idea that they need to be fixed. Being disabled is a perfectly good way to be. It's not making them any worse off. Or if it is, that's because of ableism, which is discrimination against disabled people. So enhancement might be understood as just kind of an extension of this idea of cure. And we might also worry about the consequences in terms of if you bring more enhancements into a society, is that going to make it more difficult for disabled people? who want to remain disabled to do so, or is there going to be pressure or coercion to use these kind of enhancement technologies? So that is one side of it, and I think there are worries there worth taking seriously, but there's another side of it as well where enhancements might be quite attractive to disabled people, in that both disabled people or disability activists and transhumanists or other enhancement advocates tend to reject the idea that there's something good about what's natural or normal and tend to think that we should be Mm -hmm. free to modify or not modify our bodies or minds. So sometimes within transhumanism people, use the term morphological freedom, which just means freedom of form. So that freedom to either change or not change. So there are both sides of it. And that's why the relationship between the two might be a little bit complicated. But I'm coming at it from the angle of trying to respond to some of those critiques. So I want to take those criticisms seriously. But I do think it's Possible to support enhancement in a way that respects disability rights. I, I don't want to say there are no challenges there because I think there are, and I think we should take those criticisms seriously, but I'm trying to work out how we can do that.
1: Well, to give you a broad and general question then, which I guess is the big one, how do we go about responding to those kinds of concerns?
2: So if we take the concern that I mentioned earlier about potential bad consequences or you might worry that people may be coerced or pressured you may follow the line of thought that says well enhancement might be a good thing in the abstract but in current societies it's just not going to be a good thing so before I try and respond to it just to explain that objection a bit, little bit further. The philosopher of disability, Elizabeth Barnes asks a question at one point in her book, The Minority Body, as to if disability doesn't reduce your well-being, which is the main thing that she's arguing in the book, then why is it that we think that curing disability is a good thing? but a cure for being gay would be a horrible, terrible thing. And she suggests maybe those two things are just not all that different, There wouldn't necessarily be anything bad about making it possible for gay people to not be gay. But it's just that in society as it exists now, we tend to worry that if something like that came into existence then gay people would be pressured to use it and if anybody said no I'm quite happy being gay I don't want to become straight then that would no longer be socially acceptable and the same thing she thinks might be true for disability so she thinks that it's not necessarily a bad thing to make it possible for disabled people to become non-disabled But in society as it exists now, we might worry about cures in that people might be pressured or coerced into using them. So, if you extend that thought to enhancement, even if you think it would be good for bodily autonomy for for enhancements to exist, kind of in the abstract, even if you think it would be a good thing for people to be able to do that, you might worry that it would have negative overall consequences within the prejudiced society in which we exist now and if you think that then you might think enhancements should be banned or at least strongly socially discouraged. So that is an important objection and I think we should take it seriously but there's another side to it too which is that making it more difficult for people to access Technologies that they might use to alter their bodies or minds can also have some very bad consequences. So the example that I tend to think about here is trans healthcare. So sometimes some cis people have a lot of difficulty understanding why people would want to have things like hormones or gender confirmation surgery. You sometimes hear people saying things like, you know, why can't you be a masculine woman or a feminine man? And those people are just not taking into account what it's like to feel that your body doesn't match up with your gender. And of course, an objection that's sometimes raised against trans men in particular is that they've internalized oppression and misogyny that they only want to change because. They think it's better to be men somehow. So things like that do a lot of damage. And that's because people who make that objection are not really understanding what it might be like to inhabit somebody else's body. And I really want to be open to the possibility that different people might have different needs for what their bodies should be like. So some people need to change their sex characteristics and that might be surprising to those who don't feel such a need. There are people who are quite happy being disabled and that might be surprising to people who think that disability is bad and terrible and tragic. And so enhancement technologies might be... Have great benefits as well. And so we can't necessarily assume that any kind of technology that might alter people's bodies or minds is just a luxury because we just don't know what it's like to be anybody else. So the other side of that is that denying people the ability to modify their bodies and minds can also have very bad consequences. So so we need to weigh those two things up. But that doesn't answer the question of how we minimise bad consequences that might come from bringing enhancements into a society. And that's where I think the disability rights movement can help. So there's a concept within that movement called universal design, which is about trying to make things, whether that's buildings or institutions or software or anything that we might use, Usable or accessible to everybody. And that might not be possible to do that entirely because different people have different needs and some of those needs might come into conflict with each other. But I think we can certainly get a lot closer than we are now. And it's a useful ideal, even if it's not possible to meet it entirely. So in short, sure? I think ideas from the disability rights movement, such as universal design, can help us to create a world that works for people who don't use these enhancement technologies, whether that's because they can't for some reason, such as affordability, or simply because they don't want to use them.
0: Well, that's a very thoughtful answer to an important objection that attests to the practical relevance of your work. Well, Lisette, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Okay, thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.